Hi, this is James Devine, and I am an educator who has come out of the trenches. Listen in as my friend and colleague Dana Goodyear shares stories and tips from other educators who have come out of the trenches. Welcome to the Out of the Trenches podcast. This is Dana Goodyear. Thanks for listening. Guest is Peter Docker. Peter is a keynote speaker and facilitator who presents around the world to inspire people to lead from the jump seat. He has worked alongside Simon Sinek for more than seven years, co-authoring the book, Find Your Why, and now draws on his 25 years of experience in the Royal Air Force to help organizations around the world build capacity for leadership. Peter teaches people how to navigate the challenge of leadership. His latest book, Leading from the Jump Seat, delivers the message that leadership is about lifting people up and giving them the space they need so that when the time is right, they can take the lead. Peter draws on his 25-year career in the Air Force, Royal Air Force, and over 14 years spending, spent partnering with businesses around the world to inspire others to lead from the jump seat. Welcome to the podcast, Peter. Hi, Donna. It's lovely to be on your show. Thank you for having me. Well, tell me about a time when you were in the trenches and managed to crawl out. <laughs> well, when you ask me that question, there are so many times uh, it, it's uh, it's sometimes hard to to pick one story, but uh, I, I think what we'll go with is a time when uh, I was very close to being uh, in the trenches, literally. Mm. Uh, and it was during the uh, middle of my career in the Royal Air Force, and uh, I was a senior officer. It was two thousand three, and uh, I was the the British Force Commander, leading uh, two hundred young men and women out in, um, well, we're based in Saudi Arabia. And we flew at the time large aircraft uh, called VC-10s, about the size of the sort of aircraft you go on vacation on holiday. And, and we didn't have any offensive capability. Our job was to give away fuel, give away gas uh, through hoses that we put out the wings. And we refueled British, uh, American, and uh, Australian aircraft. And, uh, we had no weapons, no self-defense systems, and uh, we'd be flying in an area where um, people wanted to shoot us down. And I remember very well the first night of, of that conflict, seeing off 40 of my men and women up in aircraft, pretty sure I wasn't gonna see them all home again. And I think the reason I choose that story is because it's probably one that, or time in my life that um, really affected me quite deeply um, and really made me think about leadership and what, what has people choose to do things even when they're faced with extraordinary circumstances, even when their lives are being put on the line. Um, and to have people choose to step forward when many would go the other way is uh, quite an extraordinary thing to experience. So, yeah, that that was, although I was, you know, 20,000 feet, that, that was <laughs> almost mm -hmm. literally the trench. You know? mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we didn't have enough resources. We didn't have, uh, the weather was terrible with sandstorms. Uh, you know, lots of challenges were thrown our way over a period of four and a half months. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that was... That was an interesting time in my life. And you talk a lot about different stories and challenges. Um, 
you know, when you worked with Royal Air Force and uh, learning to lead from the jump seat in your book. And we'll talk a little bit more about the book later, but I wanted to uh, get a definition of what is jump seat leadership and why did you choose this name? Well, like a lot of things, stories are a great way of explaining. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll explain the, 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 the story that's, that created this, this term in my mind or this approach. And it goes back to uh, another part of my Royal Air Force career. So I was in the Air Force for 25 years, so a fair chunk of time. And uh, this particular occasion, I was uh, a pilot, um, a senior pilot and senior officer, and we we're flying uh, these same large aircraft, this time carrying passengers, about 140 people. And I was just doing the final checks on a brand new captain, a chap by the name of Callum, excellent guy, really good pilot. And he'd flown as a first officer, a co-pilot for some years, and he'd just transitioned over to become a captain. And this is about a six month course where they learn lots more stuff and they're equipped so as they can take responsibility for an aircraft and its passengers and flying safely all around the world. And I came in at right at the last stage of Callum's training. And my job was just to give him the final check. And what that looked like was I acted as his co-pilot as he flew the aircraft from London over to Washington, Dulles, and then on to San Francisco, which, um, you know, that's not too far from you. It's, I'm sure you know San Francisco. It's a very busy airfield. There are two runways in a, a sort of cross shape, and they all meet in the middle, which someone must have thought at the time was a great idea for a design. But there we go. It all seems to work okay generally, but it is very busy. Mm -hmm. And uh, Callum did a fantastic job on the approach. We landed, taxied in, shut down, the passengers got off. And it was with great pleasure I was able to turn to him and say, Callum, you've done a wonderful job. Um, congratulations. You're now fully certified as a captain. We're going to stop here the night in San Fran. Uh, in the morning, you'll have a regular crew member with you, another pilot. Uh, I'll be down the back with the other passengers as you fly us back to Washington Dulles. And you know, what a great moment that was uh, to see someone after all this hard work actually accomplish what they had been working so hard to do. Um, the following morning, I was just reading a magazine and uh, Callum came to me. He said, excuse me, sir, because I was his senior, senior officer in the military. And that's how he referred to, to me at that time. So I said, yes, yes, Captain, what is it? He said, look, it's really busy during rush hour at a San Fran. He said, we don't come here that often. He said can you come and sit on the jump seat to act as an extra pair of eyes to help watch out for other traffic as we taxi to the runway, that sort of thing. I said, yes, Captain, of course. And I, I thought at the time how courageous that was of him. Because remember, he'd been trained and checked to the nth degree for the past six months. And this was his first opportunity to get people like me off his back and just do his own thing. But no, he was connected actually to a higher purpose, which was the safety of the airplane and everybody on board. And it was a good request to ask me to come and sit on that flight deck um, to help look out for other aircraft as we taxied out. And where he wanted me to sit was the jump seat. And <laughs> as some of your listeners might know, the jump seat is the third seat on the flight deck of many large aircraft. It's immediately behind the pilots. And when you're sat there, you can you know, put your, your hands on the shoulders of the pilots, you're that close. Normally it's empty, but people like me, suitably qualified, can, can sit in that seat. So I sat there, I strapped in, had a great view out the, uh, the front of the, the, the aircraft. We taxied out. 
Callum had no issues whatsoever. He was completely on top of it, as I knew he would be. And we lined up for departure and we thundered down that runway. And we got airborne and it's all going well in the first second or so. But then just a few hundred feet above the ground, we had what amounted to an emergency. And Callum was wrestling with the controls. And I knew that what I chose to do in maybe the next two seconds or less would fundamentally affect the outcome of that situation or whether I and all 140 people on board survived or not. But here's the thing, Dana. I did absolutely nothing. I sat there quite calmly with my hands in my lap because I knew in that moment, I didn't need to be a leader. I needed to become a great follower. I needed Callum to feel that I had his back, to feel I had confidence in him to sort out that situation, as indeed I did, because if I hadn't had that confidence, I would have had no business the day before certifying him as a fully qualified captain to fly that aircraft anywhere in the world. What I did need to do in that moment was stay out of his way and let him do his job. And this is the, the founding story, if you like, of the, the notion of jump seat leadership, because the flight deck of an aircraft is a wonderful metaphor for, for leadership. You know, you can get great leadership and actually some pretty poor leadership too. Um, but on this occasion, I saw Callum taking the lead. And the metaphor extends beyond just an aircraft because, you know, whatever line of work we're in, at some stage, we will hand over the controls. We will. It is inevitable. You know, if we are the CEO or principal of an organization, we will retire. If we lead a team, we will shift teams and lead another team. Um, and actually, one of the greatest challenges of, of leadership for many of us is being a parent. You know, and eventually our kids will grow up, they will leave home and they will start to lead their own lives. So handing over control is inevitable. Jump seed leadership is all about embracing that inevitability, wrapping our arms around it and recognizing that leadership is all about equipping those who will carry forward those things that are deeply important to us, what we believe in. Um, it's about equipping them so as they've got the skill set such that when the time is right, they can step up and they can take the lead. And it, it turns out, you know, some people might think this is all about legacy. Well, it, it's, it's a bit about legacy. You know, if we worked hard mm -hmm. on anything in our lives, it's nice to think that we leave it in good hands, you know, for it to be carried forward in mm -hmm. whatever way that, that, that happens. But it's actually more about that. Jump seat leadership, when we take this approach, it turns out it creates organizations, creates environments where people step up, take responsibility and start to lead in ways that they wouldn't otherwise do. And that gives us some extraordinary performance. Um, it really does. And it doesn't matter whether you're flying an airplane or principal of a school or leading a production facility um, or leading people during combat, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about people and how people think and how people can, well, we can create environments where people are given choice. And choice is one of the most powerful 
um, motivators of uh, great performance. So if we're talking about school leadership, um, you know, a lot of uh, school leaders, um, the school culture trickles down, trickles down from the principal. Uh, but if the school principal is leading with jump seat leadership, how can they help their assistant principals and other members of the administrative team um, create that school culture and apply this type of leadership? There are a lot of um, schools that are hiring completely new leadership teams for the start of the 22-23 school year. So what are some tips you'd give to those principals? Well, actually, the, the tips, Donna, are very similar to any other person who chooses to lead. And it starts with the person in the mirror. Mm -hmm. Jump seat leadership, I, I break it down to three practices, commitment, humble confidence, and belonging. And we can cover the other two later, but commitment is all about getting very clear yourself on what it is you stand for, what you believe in. Now, this goes deeper than values. Values aren't as fixed as we might like to think they are. You know, most of us, for example, most of us might like to think that we're pretty courteous to others in our day-to-day -day life. But I tell you, if you're late driving to a meeting and you see one last spot in the parking lot, and you think that's mine. And out the corner of your eye, you can see someone else hunting for that spot. Boy, mm -hmm. chances are you're gonna grab that spot. Now, mm -hmm. you might feel a bit guilty about it afterwards in your, in your mind, but you know what's happened in that moment to your value of consideration for others and others first? You know? So values can be affected by circumstances. Um, what I'm talking about in terms of our stands, these go deeper. These are what I refer to as our non-negotiables. Now, many of us, um, for many of us, family is something that's deeply important. You know, uh, a couple of years ago, I received a phone call from my wife and uh, she'd been involved in a car accident. Now, I dropped everything. I think I was on a conference call at the time, but I explained quickly that I needed to go. Everybody got it. And I went out the door. It was only a couple of miles down the road, jumped in my car and off I went. Here's the really important point. I didn't know what I was stepping into. I didn't know what I would find. And yet there was nothing on this earth that would stop me from taking that step forward. Because it turns out that when we get clear on what's deeply important to us, it gives us a reservoir of energy that can help us overcome adversity, crisis, change, or uncertainty. So coming all the way back to your question, the first thing for any principle in my mind, is to get very clear on what you stand for. What are your non-negotiables? Not the things that um, you're against, you know, that's a position against something. And a position can only exist whilst there's a counter position. No, a stand is for something. And that doesn't depend on anything or anyone else to exist. And your stands, if you want to discover what your stands are, have a look at your choices that you've made in life. Choices are the clues. Uh, you know, the, the reason I chose to go to university when I did, um, that led to, well, that led back to something that's deeply important to me, which is now stand. The reason I left university halfway through my course mm -hmm, mm -hmm. was because of something that happened in the world that ignited something deeply important inside of me, which has turned into a stand. So we can identify what these stands are. I'll give you an example, as well as family. Um, one of my stands is that of mutual respect. 
you know, if I see someone not receiving mutual respect or a situation where someone is being disrespected, then that really lights a fire inside of me and helps me step forward into that situation when perhaps otherwise I might not, you know? So the reason this is so important is that when we can identify what we as, say, the principle are deeply connected to, those non-negotiables, what we stand for, we can put them into words. <laughs> First of all, it gives us that great reservoir of energy to carry forward when we're facing those really tough times and, and uncertainty. Um, but secondly, we can use those stands to fuel commitments. Commitments are when we put our stands into action. And all the commitment is, is a promise that we make to ourselves. <laughs> you know, others might be involved, but, you know, we might promise all sorts of things to other people. But unless we've made that promise to ourselves to follow through, uh, there's a good chance that if things get tough, we can always find a way of wriggling out of things that we've said to others. You know, it's human nature. So stands fill commitments. Commitments which are a promise to ourselves, commitments taking forward action. And another way of looking at this is that when we get clear on our stands and our commitments, then it shapes what we refer to as character. In other words, what others can rely on us for. And I think when we're hoping to bring on people who report to us, you know, assistant principals, deputy principals, or in my case, junior pilots in the earlier example, then for them to know what they can count on us for, what we stand for, not only um, develops um, great mutual respect, but also it gives people a solid foundation on which they can build because they know that we will have their backs based on what we stand for and what we believe in. And that is one of the most, one of the most uh, generative things that we can offer to our people. If on the other hand, we haven't taken the time to get clear on what we stand for, what we believe in, and the direction we're going to, uh, to, to travel in, it's very difficult for anybody else in our team to get a handle on what is important to us and therefore shape their actions accordingly. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. Yeah, and I think um, we're, we're talking a lot about the being parents of teenagers and uh, teachers. They're also in that jump seat. Um, and you did a... Um, an episode on uh, the Talking with Teens podcast. So how can the parents of teens and the teachers of teens lead from the jump seat when interacting with those teens? Because uh, we know that teens make a lot of mistakes. We know that uh, you know they need to learn from their mistakes and some parents have it easier to let go than others. But um, you know this is an important subject, especially when we're thinking about teens learning to drive. Um, you know, in the US, they can drive at age uh, 16 or um, just making those choices about um, post-secondary education? Oh, there's a lot in that question, Donna. Um, so let, let, let's, let, let's select a few areas. For, first of all, what I've just said about um, advice, if you like, or thoughts for principles, applies to us as parents, uh, and I'm a parent, my two children, Louise and Patrick have grown up and started to lead their own lives. They both left home and 
uh, leading extraordinary lives. Um, so I speak from a bit of experience. Um, but everything I've just said about principles applies to parents as well. First of all, get clear on what you stand for, okay, to provide that foundation, that, that base, and be consistent with that. Um, but also I'll draw from the second second, I'll draw from the second practice of jump seat leadership, which is humble confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, humble confidence is all about being very clear on where you're going, where you're heading, resolute on um, on on that destination and confident in your own strengths, but also having the humility to listen. And I think that's particularly important um, as parents or as as teachers, um, in my view, where we won't always know the answer. Um, And to have the humility to listen to others. Uh, You know, for example, I've I've had times when, excuse me, um, my kids have, have made inputs uh, to solving challenges that we've come across where, oh, I hadn't thought of that. It's a jolly good idea. And to be able to embrace that. Um, but also, and we can dig deeper into that if you wish later, but also I want to bring in this notion of belonging. Um, as human beings, we are naturally drawn to this sense of belonging. The vast majority of us want to feel that we belong. And that kind of makes sense. You know, if we go back some thousands of years, um, well, actually, even now, coming together, we accomplish so much more than we do individually. And that goes back to when we're hunting on the open plains, you know, in tribes. Um, And so too now. And so it's inbuilt in us to, to seek out this sense of belonging. And I think it's particularly important in teenage years where young people are trying to figure out where do they fit in? Mm-hmm. How do I belong? And of course, we've got a great opportunity for nurturing that sense of belonging at home, in, the, in, in our own homes, but also in a classroom. I think to be able to nurture a sense of belonging in that classroom, I've been a, a teacher as well, um, upper education, uh, second degree level, but the same applies, you know, in my small cadre of, of um, pupils, we nurtured this sense of belonging. And the reason that is so important is that when people feel that they belong, um, they are much more likely to step up and take responsibility. So I'll give you an example. It sounds trivial, but actually I think most parents will relate to it. Um, <laughs> when my teenager, when my daughter was a teenager, could I get her to put her dirty laundry in the basket, ready for washing? Unless I stood over her or my wife or mother stood over her, you know, it wasn't going to happen, was it? It just, you know, more important things. But wait, if she had a date at the weekend or going out with her friends at the weekend, she wanted to wear a particular outfit, would she put her laundry in the basket then? Heck, you bet she would. She might even learn to wash it herself, as mm-hmm. indeed I think she did, you know? Mm-hmm. Why is that? It's because she wanted to feel that she belonged to her group of friends. And wearing a particular outfit or, or fashion, that was an important aspect at that time in her life of feeling that she belonged. And so nurturing that sense of belonging, it has people step up to do things that perhaps 
they might not otherwise choose to do. So coming back to your question, what can Jump Seek Leadership offer to um, parents and teachers? Well, I think everything that I've written about in the book can apply directly to parenting. It can apply directly to teaching. And there are elements of the three practices, commitment, you know, what do you stand for, what do you believe in, provide that foundation, that rudder for everybody under your charge, whether it's your, your own children or, or uh, the children of others in a classroom setting. Humble confidence. Um, lead with humble confidence. Not ego, by the way. Um, but lead with humble confidence. And finally, nurture that sense of belonging. Because the more people feel they belong, the more they will step up, the more they'll take responsibility and they'll start to lead their own lives and um, become leaders themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we see that happen um, a lot when some parents lead with ego and, you know, sometimes those teens can go down the wrong road. And you give several examples of, you know, a, a disaster that occurred um, many years ago with a plane colliding with another plane and uh, how that pilot led with ego. So um, let's talk a little bit about um, your book writing process. So um, you told me in the pre-chat you didn't want to go down the traditional uh, publishing route. Um, so you formed your own publishing company. Uh, so tell me a little bit about that. Sure. Well, um, the, the first book I wrote, the one with Simon Sinek and David Mee called Find Your Why, that was the traditional publishing route. And I started working with, uh, for this, this current book, started working with a publishing agent. Uh, and uh, halfway through that process, well, actually, I, I'll, I'll tell you in all transparency, you know, we, we put together a, um, a proposal and our agent took around all the big, big publishing houses. And um, it was one of those where they, they came back and, and said, yeah, great, love the proposal. Love it. Mm -hmm. Great. Where are you heading with this book? But what, what success have you had so far as a, um, a single author as opposed to joint author? You know, is one of those catch 22s yeah. of uh, when you're successful, come back to us. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but until then, you know, go out and get some success. Oh, mm, interesting. So my agent was then going to go to some of the smaller publishing houses. But I thought, wait, hang on. A let's let's look at this a different way. And I had the, the, the privilege of having some wonderful people around me um, who I'd worked with before, who had all got some experience in supporting authors to write. Um, and I thought, you know what? We're going to form our own publishing company and publish this book ourselves. And we'll use it uh, as a, a vehicle for practicing jump seat leadership as well. Mm -hmm. So we're practicing what we're writing at the same <laughs> time. Uh, and it was an extraordinary experience. And so the forming a publishing company, it sounds much grander than it is in, in my case, at least. But what it meant was that we negotiated deals with printers in the US, over in the UK, um, distribution houses, uh, et cetera. And the reason I went that route was because I needed to have a stock of books um, that I could draw from when I, I go and give keynote talks around the world. You know, I'm doing one up in um, Michigan um, next month and I need 500 books. Um, 
-hmm. and you can't do that through the traditional um, self-publishing route of print on demand you know mm -hmm. because if you order a book on amazon for example print on demand they will print one book and it gets sent to you it's not practical to do that if you need large numbers of books to uh, um uh, to, to provide at, at keynote talks or conferences so that's the route we went and what I found particularly exciting was the people on my team let's take for example Jeff who I've known for many years I worked with him when I was on Simon Sinek's team and Jeff if you were to look up his his name Jeff Baron you'd see that he is uh, an opera singer of some renown and has been for 20 years um, Jeff's role as I wrote a chapter a week of this book, I would send Jeff the draft. I said, right, Jeff, what I want you to do is bring your 20 years experience of being on stage, connecting with audiences at an emotional level, um, the arc of a story and storytelling. And I'd love you to bring all of those insights to reading my draft and help me make it better. And it's been a, a tremendous joy for me to see Jeff apply his considerable skills in different ways. Um, and uh, we continue to work together. Um, and it is a great joy for me. And the, the other aspect of Jump Seat Leadership that I apply into this whole creating your own publishing, publishing company is that everybody I work with in the States, whether it's uh, on my team, whether it's mm -hmm. Jeff, Ashley, Christina, they each have their own businesses. <laughs> and I work with them to help them build their business uh, and lift them up. And it just so happens that they bring those skills they have in their own business to me as a client to help me uh, accomplish what I'm trying to accomplish. So it's, um, it's a pretty cool setup, even though I say so myself. It's great to see uh, those people I mentioned thrive and, uh, uh, and progress. It's a great way of doing it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think uh, getting that advice from Jeff and how to weave those stories in really works well in your book. And I wanted to just kind of point out how um, I like how you end each chapter and you have those bullet points, um, you know, kind of you have the story coming um, into the chapter, how you experience the situation, how it can be applied to other situations. But then you have those um, what people should remember, basically, how um, you know, those bullet points of what they should think about um, as they go on from each chapter. And, um, you know, I wanted to kind of talk about like the legacy, you're wrapping up the book, uh, the end of the book, talking about how the legacy is about the delight of seeing other people rise after we lifted them up, right? You give several examples throughout the book of lifting up those co-pilots or, you know, letting them you know, keep the controls, even though, you know, they might've been fumbling. So um, I think just reading everything in and, you know, it comes out perfectly in my opinion <laughs> for somebody who is writing, um, you know, about to have a book published themselves. So I hope I'm able to accomplish the same thing and weaving the storytelling and those, those points to remember together. Well, thank you. And the, the, the points you mentioned at the end of each chapter, I wanted the book to be a how-to guide, you know, and the, the points you refer to, I call them, consider this. So I, I, jump seat leadership is not about telling people what to do. Yeah. It, it's about uh, creating, them, creating a space that they can step into and the notion of, well, consider this um, is exactly the words I, I wanted to, uh, uh, to, to have in these, these bullet points at the end of each chapter. 
because they might not apply in every situation, but if you think about it, chances are they will, or it will be a stepping stone to another idea that you could, uh, a way you could implement the practices of jump seat leadership in your particular uh, profession, business, or, or even your home life. So you mentioned that you uh, do trainings with uh, groups of people, you know, when uh, you have to order those large numbers of books, et cetera. So do you have any upcoming keynotes or trainings in North America uh, that you'd like to talk to leaders about? Um, well, I have, but they are um, company-based. So mm -hmm. you know, uh, for instance, I, I'm working with a large grocery store chain um, uh, across North America and uh, I'll be giving a keynote to their 500 VPs and directors um, mm -hmm. and then following up with two um, workshops. So the keynote is in person and uh, the, the, the workshops I do afterwards will be from uh, a TV studio I use here in the UK, uh, which is where I'm based, as you might gather from my accent. Uh, so, uh, yes, but that, that's obviously a, a closed um those are closed sessions because it's uh, for a particular company. Um, what I, I'm hoping to do is whenever I'm in the States working with a corporation, mm -hmm. then I, I encourage that corporation to um, sponsor me to stay a couple of extra days in the area so as I can then go and give a talk to, uh, say, schools, high schools mm -hmm. or uh, colleges or first responders, people who might not ordinarily be able to, uh, not ordinarily have the budget to get me over. Mm -hmm. um, so um, uh, I'm hoping that will happen uh, in Michigan, up in Grand Rapids, where I'll be. Um, we'll, uh, that will be end of August. Um, so uh, yes, that's what I, I have at the moment. I'm also working on, I've been spending a lot of time over the last few months writing uh, a course um, to help people implement jump seat leadership. And I, I think I, I've written something like 100,000 words. It's longer than the book. Mm. Um, but what this course looks like is uh, I'm taking people through on video myself um, the, the concepts and the ideas and the approach of jump seat leadership. And it's designed such that um, a facilitator of an organization and you know, this is directed principally at corporations who have got thousands of people who I couldn't possibly reach myself. So this is a way of scaling it. But you know, any teacher would be able to easily facilitate um, this course. And what they do would stream the, the videos that uh, I've produced to the participants in a, a, um, a workshop. And you know, during that video, I'm setting people up, explaining things, but also uh, asking them questions and exercises. And all the facilitator needs to do is to, to curate that and listen to um, what people come up with in, in terms of responses to the questions. So I'm excited by that. Um, mm -hmm. Extraordinary amount of work has gone into it. It's designed to provide between six and 12 months of training mm -hmm. for, um, uh, for companies. So, um, uh, yes, but I, I could see how there may well be applications in um, the, the school system if, if people were interested. So we're hoping that will come online in October time uh, in the fall. So uh, uh, stay tuned to the website and the likes as we, uh, we bring that to fruition. 
Yeah, and you said that you're going to be using the Apollo 13 movie as a case study. Uh, you mentioned that oh, yes. a little bit in your book. Yeah, um, uh, I, I think Apollo 13 is a fantastic visual example of jump seat leadership in action. And um, I've managed to get the rights from Universal Studios mm. to, um, to, to use clips of Apollo 13 to illustrate uh, the practices of jump seat leadership in action. And of course, you know, thanks to Hollywood, Hollywood it's quite dramatic and uh, exciting too. So uh, that also uh, helps, I think, in a workshop environment. Well, uh, we've talked a lot about uh, your experience, how you apply jump seat leadership in your work with the Royal Air Force and how others can apply that. Out of everything we discussed on the podcast today, what's one thing you'd like listeners to remember? Well, can I have two things? Sure. <laughs> the, and they're closely related. I, I think the, the first is simply be yourself. Mm -hmm. Now, that is advice that was given to me, it feels like hundreds of years ago when I, I graduated from the Royal Air Force College as an officer back in uh, 1983. And uh, one of my trainers said, you know, just be yourself. It wasn't until years later that I fully understood what that means. And that to me now means be very clear on what you stand for, what you believe in, um, because that gives uh, other people a way of being able to relate to you, but also it's your reservoir of energy and strength as you step into the unknown and face challenging circumstances. Um, and it's related to the other point I'd like to make, which um, I'll draw on a, a quote from Elon Musk. You know, he set up SpaceX and for quite a few years, every rocket he, he launched blew up shortly after takeoff. And someone asked him, you know, how on earth do you keep on going? Mm -hmm. And he said, if something is important enough, you will do it anyway, even when the odds are not in your favor. And identifying what is deeply important enough is linked directly to understanding what we stand for, what we believe in. And just like with uh, Elon Musk trying to launch spacecraft into space, that will give us the energy to continue to move forward even in the face of adversity. <laughs> so be yourself and identify what's deeply important to you because that will help you on your way. Oh, that's great to remember. And I know you refer to that in the book as well. And, um, you know, you tell many, um, many stories about how people like Elon Musk are leading from the jump seat and uh, keep going and stay motivated. Uh, where can people connect with you and find you online? Uh, website is easy one. My website is leadingfromthejumpseat.com. Uh, you can find me on the, the usual social media sites of uh, Twitter and uh, Instagram at Peter Docker and also of course on LinkedIn. Um, I haven't been too active recently on social media because uh, I, I think it can end up wasting a lot of time and mm -hmm. I've been focused on writing this course um, but uh, uh, also there, there are some articles there was an article in, in Forbes uh, written about the book that came out uh, just a couple of weeks ago uh, so if you Google Lean from the Jump Seat and Forbes, you'll, you'll find uh, uh, an article about applying the practices in, in business. 
So um, yes, that's where people can find me. Great, great. Well, thanks so much for uh, being my guest on the Out of the Trenches podcast today. It was a pleasure speaking with you today. You too, Donna. Thank you for having me. Check out the show notes on danagoodier.com to learn more about this guest and links to their social media. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review wherever you download this podcast. Tell your friends and colleagues about it. And if this episode resonates, especially with you, be sure to share it out on social media and tag me at Out of Trenches PC.